Well, tonight I'd invite you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 37. Exodus chapter 37. We're just going to do a fairly simple study uh, this evening, but I hope it'll be encouraging as we consider one of the pictures that the Lord has given to us in His Word that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ our Savior. We're going to be considering the mercy seat. And the passage here in Exodus 37 is one of several that speaks of the mercy seat. And this is the passage where uh, the mercy seat is actually constructed over the Ark of the Covenant. And so we'll read that to begin our time this evening. Exodus 37, we'll read the first nine verses. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends." The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the, were the faces of the cherubim. Well, that was a master craftsman work to make that lid, that seat out of pure gold with two cherubim coming out of the lid and facing one another, uh, representing the holiness of God. But there is a significance that we're going to unpack this evening, and I trust that as we do so tonight, there's many things that uh, the Lord uses His Word to accomplish, but one blessing of dealing with these pictures in the Old Testament, that Christ ultimately is the fulfillment of in the New Testament, is that we are digging into the great doctrines of grace and of God's justification of unrighteous people through His righteous Son. And my assumption tonight is that most here, and maybe many who are listening on the live stream, are at least professing Christians. And one element of the Christian life that some people, uh, you could say, struggle with more than others, at, at perhaps, is the matter of assurance of salvation. 
And assurance of salvation is, is not our salvation, right? Our salvation is objective and obje- objectively accomplished in Christ. He is, he is our salvation, and all those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith are saved based on the objective work of Christ and the fact that we are a new creature in Christ. But we don't always feel saved. And sometimes, for many different reasons, uh, we lack the joy of assurance that we are saved. And whether we're assured or not doesn't change the reality of those in Christ. Um, one a picture of this, uh, just to bring in another Old Testament example, when the Lord had the Passover lamb slaughtered for his people the night before they left Egypt and gave instructions that that blood be put on the, on the doorposts, you know, you, you could have one house where the oldest son was absolutely confident that that blood was sufficient for the death angel to pass over. Maybe in another house, there was another son who couldn't sleep because he wasn't sure. Even though that blood was there, was it enough? Was it done the right way? But regardless of whether the son was sure or whether in another house a son was not sure, the death angel passed over. It wasn't dependent on how sure the person was in the house that was saved. It was dependent on God's mercy. It was dependent on what God had ordained to do. And so it is with our salvation. We know that the work was effectively and finally accomplished in Christ. And as we study the Scriptures, as we study the doctrines of grace, as we study the pictures that the Lord has given to us in His Word, these are all gifts from the Lord to, uh, to cause us to grow in our faith and to even strengthen uh, those who might be shaken or uncertain Uh, as they think about the assurance of their salvation. Salvation rests in the objective work of Christ, and we don't feel saved. One One of the first things to do is to go back and work through the great doctrines of grace and recognize the great work that Christ has done. And so I hope doing that tonight through the picture of the Old Testament that will follow uh, into the fulfillment of Christ will be uh, somewhat of an assurance for those who might be struggling, a point of joy uh, for those, for all who are in Christ. And of course, a point of invitation, a point of challenge for those that are outside of Christ, that you would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for your sins, who is the one who 
appeased God's wrath towards you. I've just given away the whole thing right there. But he appeased God's wrath toward you. He appeased God's wrath towards sin when he died on the cross. Well, let's turn to the Scripture here this evening, and I want to first look at the problem, the problem requiring the mercy seat. We just read in Exodus 37 the construction of the mercy seat, but let's just take a moment and think through what has already taken place in the history of God's people to this point. Going back to Genesis chapter 20, which is the chapter of the Ten Commandments, at the beginning of God's revelation of the Ten Words, His law. And about a year ago, Pastor Don spent a good amount of time teaching us the significance of of these commandments. But at the beginning of that revelation... In verse 1, it says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God has redeemed his people from Egypt. He's brought them out. At the end of Psalm 105, we're told that he brought them out so that they would serve him so that they would obey Him, so that they would walk in His statutes. That was God's work of deliverance. And then He gives them this law saying, this is, this is the revelation of my character. This is how you order your life so that you glorify Me, the One who has delivered you for the sake of My own name. As we move from that point in Exodus... There are additional elements of the law for Israel that God lays out. And in chapter 25, in chapter 25, the Lord gives instructions for the sanctuary. And I just want to point out the reference. We won't read it this evening. But in verses 10 through 22, we have the instructions for the construction of the ark and for the construction of the mercy seat. Verse 22 at the end of that passage says, There, speaking of the mercy seat where the cherubim were, there I will meet with you, And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people. So as God gave Moses that instruction, it was a place of revelation. It was intended to be a place of revelation, a place where God would communicate to Moses. So we've been given the law. God has redeemed his people. He's he's laid out for them now the law in chapter 20. He's laying out for Moses as Moses is now up on the mountain receiving this revelation from God. He's laying out his system for worship. 
But what we find in chapter 32 is quite disturbing. Here are these people. They've been delivered. God has told them what His law is, and He told them in a very dramatic fashion. There were thunderings and there were lightnings around that mountain, and and the majesty of God as He spoke was so grand and majestic and overwhelming that the people, after God gave them those words, said, we don't want to hear from God anymore. Moses, you go talk to God. That's too much for us to take. It's too grand. He's too holy. We can't, we can't take this. And so that's what Moses did. He went up and he was talking to God. God was talking to him. But after, after that experience, after the experience of Hearing the voice of God, giving the law of God, I mean, and being shaken to their core. What happened? Well, verse 32, or or chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were on in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offering and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a graphic revelation of the human condition. These people heard directly from God and God told them, don't make images to worship. Don't make them. Don't make images. Don't don't confine me to an image. And that's exactly what they did. And you see it in their statement. These are your gods, O Israel. And and, uh, the word there is, is probably actually speaking of God. This is your God, Elohim, who brought you up out of Egypt. And that's confirmed by what Aaron says in verse 6. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So they're building this calf and they're using it as an object of worship to the Lord. And it turns into 
a raucous celebration of debauchery. After they've been shaken to the core by the voice of God. Now, what would you do if you had given someone very serious instructions personally and within a few days they just turned around and did the exact opposite? I'm done with you. <laughs> you, you can't listen to my clear instructions? Well, what we find is that Moses comes down and obviously, for good reason, is angry. He's angry with the people. God does execute judgment on the idolatrous people, but God does not turn away from his covenant. God does not say, all right, we're done. He renews the covenant. And if you turn to chapter 34, chapter 34, this chapter, of course, is best known for the Lord coming before Moses and the revelation of the glory of the Lord after Moses has asked to see the glory of the Lord in chapter 33 after his intercession. You know, as I'm going through this, there's so many things that I'm like, oh, we need to stop and talk about this. Moses' intercession for these people. What a, what a heart of a leader that he would say, Lord, take, take my name out, but spare these people. But what we find in chapter 34 in verse 1, after the Lord, after Moses is interceded, and asked to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord says to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Now let me pause. Why, why did he have to cut two tablets like the first? And do you remember what happened? What did he do when he came? What did Moses do when he came down from the mountain and saw the people in their debauched state of so-called worship? He was angry and he threw down those original tablets and broke them. So the Lord says, cut two more tablets and I will write on the tablets the words that were the, on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses is here in the presence of God, 
And the, the law is going to be rewritten. The covenant is going to be reestablished. And we see that take place in verse 28 of chapter 34. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. There's a an important element here about the Word of God. You know, the Word of God is stored up in heaven. (laughs) Nobody's ever going to change the Word of God. And this is one of the texts that prove the unchanging and indestructible nature of the Word of God. Moses destroyed the the tablets and the Lord wrote it again. You're never going to destroy the Word of God. But in this revelation and the renewal of the covenant, God has stated his character that he is slow to anger, that he forgives iniquity and transgression of sin, but at the same time, he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, I just want to point that out for us tonight and and kind of store that away in your mind. God forgives, he forgives, But at the same time, at the same time, he does not clear the guilty. That creates a tension. And we'll resolve it, but we need to recognize the tension. How can God forgive and not, and be just by not clearing the guilty? Again, it'll be resolved, and part of that is the is the picture of the mercy seat. But do we see where we are right now? God delivered the people. He communicated his law very clearly. They, they turned away in, in rebellious disobedience to the Lord right after he had given them the law. And now the Lord in his mercy and his grace has renewed the covenant. God has renewed the covenant. This is God's doing. And so when we come to chapter 37 that we read at the beginning of the time this evening, what do we find? We find that Bezalel is making the ark and he is making the mercy seat. God God did not change in his character. God did not change in his posture toward his delivered people based on what they did. God remained consistent as their redeeming God, as their leading as their leading and guiding God. He forgave and he renewed his covenant to them. And now things are progressing as the the actual ark and the mercy seat are being built. The the problem that that is requiring the mercy seat, the problem that we're seeing develop in the book of Exodus and with, with the people of Israel is that people are really bad at keeping God's law. And that's the understatement of history. They can't keep God's law. It's not in their nature. 
Even, even when they, when they have an incredibly earth, literally earth shaking revelation of God coming down on the mountain, that incredible experience isn't enough to change their heart. They can't keep God's law. But God keeps his word. God keeps his covenant. And, and we start to have some interesting things develop as we consider the mercy seat. So we've begun by looking at the problem requiring the mercy seat, and to summarize it, it's just we can't keep God's law. So let's notice second then the placement of the mercy seat. The placement of the mercy seat. It is a lid. It is a lid for the Ark of the Covenant. The gold represents the sovereign majesty of God. It's made out of gold. The cherubim on top of that lid is a declaration of God's holiness. Remember that it was a cherubim that was placed to guard the tree of life after the fall, the tree of life that was there in the Garden of Eden. Cherubim proclaim the holiness, the the moral perfection, and the complete transcendence of the God of the universe. We find in other passages that in the ark, uh, an urn of manna was placed, indicating the provision of God for his people, and also the tablets of the law, those tablets that have been rewritten by God back in chapter 34 are placed in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the, the importance of those tablets in the Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence with his people, the significance was a declaration of God's righteousness and God's demand for righteousness. The the law was housed in that ark, in that box of acacia wood. But then, and and you think about this, here, if, if you have this box and it's open, the law is there. But then on top of that, the lid, the covering of the law, that man can't keep is the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The proclamation. The proclamation of gospel hope. I want to read an extended quote from a book called Beginning at Moses, A Guide to Finding Christ in the Old Testament by Michael Barrett. And that'll transition us into a little bit more detail of the picture of the mercy seat. We're looking at the placement. We're looking at the significance. This is what he says. From the open box, the laws cried for righteousness and demanded condemnation for unrighteousness. If the box were left open, man had no hope. The mercy seat symbolized the essence of the gospel, 
There is a way into the presence of the sovereign, holy, and righteous God. If the open box demanded the sinner's condemnation, the closed box declared the sinner's salvation. The mercy seat was God's visible pledge that he would be satisfied with the atonement and will by virtue of that atonement dwell with man. When the blood was sprinkled on the atoning lid, the impediments to fellowship with God were removed. The blood was placed over the demands of the law, and all was well. Now, where do we get the sprinkling of the blood? Well, let's look now at the picture of that mercy seat and go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. So the tabernacle has been constructed. The mercy seat is in the holy of holies, the most holy place. It's a place that no one can enter except one person, the high priest, and he can only enter it once a year, and he can only enter it with blood. And what we have in Leviticus 16 is the instructions from God for the high priest that will enter the most holy place and the mercy seat. Look at verse 11. This is all taking place on the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16 of Leviticus is about the Day of Atonement. We're just going to look at uh, some uh, some verses here in the middle, beginning in verse 11, that have to do with the mercy seat. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, That is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the bull, with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins." And he shall do for the tent of the meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the high priest, Aaron in this case, he had to take the bowl for him and his sin. And he had to take the goat and the blood of the goat for the sins of the people. And that blood had to be sprinkled on that lid as an covering for their sins. And remember, the lid is covering the demands of the law. 
And it's a picture, again, a, a promise, a pledge of, from God of what he is going to do, of how he mercifully deals with his people according to his character, according to his covenant, according to his word, according to what he has ordained. But now, if you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, where in the New Testament we have this entire ritual brought up again and explained in preparation for a glorious statement about the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9. And just to give us a little bit of context, this is right after the writer has quoted the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, God's promise of a new covenant that ultimately was fulfilled in Christ. And he says at the end of chapter 8, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So now he's going to go back and give us a picture and tell us the significance of the old covenant. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's one of those statements in Hebrews you, you think, oh, I wish he could have. But he goes on. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." The significance of this passage is that the writer of Hebrews is telling us, look, this was a picture. God gave this as a picture, but it was insufficient in and of itself. The sacrifices of those bulls and the sacrifices of those goats, they were not ultimately effective in taking away the sin. They couldn't, they couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. There was still guilt, and so it had to be offered year after year after year by a priest that himself needed sins forgiven. He had to offer an offering for himself because he was sinful. It was not ultimately effective. 
It was, verse 9, it was symbolic for the present age. It's inefficient. These sacrifices cannot settle the conscience before God. There's no final removal of guilt. But it's a picture. So what does the picture ultimately lead us to? Well, let's look finally at the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the mercy seat. We've seen the problem, the problem requiring the mercy seat. We, we can't keep God's law. The placement of the mercy seat as a proclamation of hope for those who can't keep God's law. The picture of the mercy seat described for us in Hebrews, but now the fulfillment of the mercy seat. Let's read on in Hebrews chapter 11, or chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant goats and bulls they could not atone the blood of christ and notice notice the contrasting statement in verse 14 how much more will the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What does the blood of Christ do that the blood of the animals could not do? Well, the blood of the animals, there was a sense of purification in, the, in that people obeyed God. But it was not a final removal of guilt. It was not a final removal of the wrath of God. But when Christ gave himself, when he shed his blood, it was the final removal of the wrath of God for all those chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. And so the purification, the purification goes all the way to our conscience to our inward man that we know 
because of what God has said in his word, because of the witness of the spirit of God with our spirit, we know that our guilt is gone, that we are cleansed, that there is no condemnation, that there is no wrath of God because all of God's wrath for our sin was entirely exhausted when Christ died on the cross in our place. And so we are purified in our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One other passage I'd like us to turn to. Here we see that Christ cleanses with finality, and I just want to trace the propitiating nature of God's work in Christ one more step further. So turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Remember that in Romans chapter 1, Paul begins to explain the gospel by telling us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's man's problem. We're under the wrath of God. And the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, he, he just fills that out. He demonstrates how everyone, every person is under the wrath of God because of our suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. But verse 21 is one of the most glorious transitions in the Word of God. Here we are where every mouth is stopped. The works of the law are impossible to cleanse us. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The fulfillment of the mercy seat is fulfilled in Christ as he propitiates God's just wrath against the unrighteous, against those who have broken God's law, against those who are guilty because of the imputed sin of Adam. Folks, we're just hopeless. We're hopeless. 
But God in his righteousness, not in your righteousness, not in works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. In his righteousness he set forth Jesus Christ as the propitiation, as the appeasement for his wrath by his blood. Now, where does mercy seat come in this text? Well, the word that Paul uses for propitiation is the same word, and follow me here for a minute. I know it's Tuesday. I know it's late Tuesday night. But just follow me here for a moment. I think this will just come together in a glorious, magnificent way that will stir your hearts and minds to praise and glorify the God who saved you. The word propitiation that Paul uses here is the same word that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint. This word is the same word that translates mercy seat back in Exodus. He is the propitiation. Now, I want to make a distinction. Jesus isn't the mercy seat, he's the fulfillment of what the mercy seat pointed to. But what the mercy seat pointed to is that the law, the law demanded righteousness. Man could not attain the righteousness of God. But God in his mercy and his grace He made provision. He made a covering. He made an atonement for man. And it was pointing forward to the ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says when he goes on in verse 25 to say, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Remember back in Exodus 34, I told you to remember how how can God forgive and yet hold accountable? How can he do that? I mean, when we're talking about forgiveness, does God just arbitrarily forgive? If he did that, he would not be God. He would not be righteous. In order for God to forgive you for your sin, in order for God to do that and maintain who he is, maintain his righteousness, there had to be a righteous payment for sin. And Paul's argument in chapter 3 is that God... By setting forth his son, by setting forth Jesus Christ, by setting forth the sinless son of God, and having him crucified, shedding his innocent blood for the redemption of sin, God retains his righteousness by supplying the sacrifice that he alone could supply. 
by supplying in Christ the one person who could take upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God that could exhaust the wrath of God, the righteous, just wrath of God for your sin. And he did that. He put forth Christ. He put forth Christ to absorb the righteous wrath of God for sin. So that those those who believe in God, those who are justified, verse 24, those who are declared righteous by his grace as a gift, it's not an arbitrary declaration where God says, you know, I, I, I want this person to be justified and, you know, there's no basis for it. I, I just kind of want that person to be justified. No, 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 no. That's not what happened. No, God justified you by grace, all of grace, through redemption that's in Christ, through purchasing you out of the slave market of sin. And he did it by setting forth his own son as the one who would make the payment, as the one who would placate all of his wrath. It's entirely just. God is entirely just when he declares you righteous because his son paid your penalty. He is entirely just when he declares you righteous because you are the recipient of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. I think it's John Owen who, in speaking of the appeasement of wrath, of propitiation, says, when you think about that, there are four elements. There's an offense. There's a person offended. There's a person offending. And there has to be a sacrifice to appease the offended. The offense is sin. It's an infant offense against a holy God. And we are the offenders. We offended God. We offended him in a way that we could never, ever, ever, ever come close to doing anything to resolve. But God set forth his own son as the sacrifice to appease His righteous wrath. And how important it is, how important it is that we understand that Christ did not come to change God the Father's mind. God is the same. He is is love. No, God in love set forth his son as the propitiation for our sins because the God who is love is also the God who is absolutely just and righteous. And he accomplished all of that. He accomplished all of who he is and all of the work of salvation in setting forth his son. God, the one offended God, the one offended, set forth the sacrifice of Christ to appease his own righteous wrath. And it's with the backdrop of righteousness and the backdrop of of the righteous wrath of God against sin and against sinners. God is 
personally, he is personally wrathful toward those who sin against him. It's with that backdrop that we see the full force of the love of God that Christ was set forth to take upon himself that wrath. God, God righteously, he righteously makes righteous all those whom Christ died to redeem, all who come to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sin. I want to read just a portion from our doctrinal statement, the Baptist Confession of 1689. It captures it so well, right? That's why we have it as a doctrinal statement. But in chapter 11, the chapter of, that deals with justification in the third paragraph, the authors state it this way. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified and did, by the sacrifice of himself in in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice, not Satan, not anyone else, It was a satisfaction of God's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. How deep is the Father's love? How rich is His salvation? God, God secured you in Christ. And you who are in Christ, you will never endure His wrath. No, you, you cannot live a perfect life. You will struggle with sin. There will be times that, that you will be under the fatherly displeasure of God, which Hebrews 12 tells us is the very evidence of our salvation, that God in His grace takes, takes the, the time to, to deal with us as children, to discipline us but you will never be under his wrath. That was all absorbed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many practical applications to this, but I I just want to end with one, just just so that we can see, that we can see the connection of the glory of our salvation, the glory of these doctrines of grace, all that God has done for us in his justification, and how that then works itself out in our lives. Back in Exodus 34, the Lord said he is a forgiving God, and and we have seen this played out. Oh, his forgiveness is unfathomable. It's unfathomable. 
I mean, think about all of the things that we have done to offend God, and yet he does not change in his, in his forgiving posture toward us. In fact, it was even while we were sinners that Christ died for us. His, his forgiveness is unfathomable. So this is the point of connection and application. Christ's propitiation of God's wrath is ultimately then the basis of our forgiveness to others. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 6. In fact, let's just go ahead and turn there. Matthew 6, at the end of what's known as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now is he saying that we have to forgive so that we can earn forgiveness? Not at all. Not at all. The point that Christ is making is that forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. And when you examine what God has done to forgive you and at the cost at which God forgave you, then folks, anything anyone does is pocket change compared to the debt that we were forgiven. In fact, that's what Jesus communicates in Matthew 18. If you want to turn to Matthew 18, it's the parable of the unforgiving servant who owed the largest number that existed in that day. That's the number that Jesus puts out in debt. It was an unpayable debt that he was forgiven. And then he turned around and would not forgive his fellow servant. Look at where Jesus goes with that. Verse 35, the application. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Speaking of the unforgiving servant being, being put away. Again, it's not that Jesus is saying you have to earn salvation. He's communicating that forgiven people forgive. When we recognize the debt that we were forgiven, when we recognize the wrath of God that was appeased in Christ, we forgive. And so one more passage as we wrap up this evening. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All right? Do you see the connection that he makes there? 
How do we deal with one another? How do we deal with sins? How do we deal with wrongs? Forgive as God forgave you. And what we've done most of this evening is look at a picture and look at the fulfillment of what God did to forgive us in Christ. But it goes on and really I think chapter 5 verse 1 is a connection and carrying of the thought from the end of chapter 4. We forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you, so therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You think, well, how am I supposed to imitate God? Well, that's why it's the continuation of the thought from verse 32. You imitate God by forgiving. (laughs) That's how you imitate God. And you imitate God... With the understanding, he says, you imitate God as dearly beloved children. And what he's communicating is you forgive and you imitate God in this way, understanding that you are the object of God's love. And the word beloved is a word that would have been used to describe the affection that a monarch would have for his one and only heir. That's a lot of love. And Paul says, that's, that's the kind of love that God has for you, only because God is infinite, he has it for all those who are in Christ. And so you are wrapped and, and held in the love of God because he forgave you, and because he, forgi- he forgave you as you're wrapped in the love of God, you can freely forgive those who offend you. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. You know, sometimes forgiveness, no, pretty much all the time, forgiveness requires the crucifixion of self. And that's exactly what Paul says. Just like Christ gave himself for you, you lay down your life in love. You lay down your life in love. And, and do it again. This is just one simple application. Do it out of the abundance of joy and responsiveness to what God has done for you in Christ. When he propitiated his wrath, when he justified you by grace, by his free gift, and made you an heir with Christ. Oh, we have so much to rejoice in in Christ, don't we? The word of God is so rich and so encouraging as we dig in to see what God has revealed to us that we might serve him and love him well as those redeemed and as those given the Spirit of God. So may the Lord give us grace to take what we've heard tonight and rejoice to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you for the propitiation that he accomplished. We thank you that you set him forth. Oh, Lord, there are so many riches that we've looked at and so much that your word tells us and 
the way that you have revealed your character to us and your goodness and your kindness and your consistency and your righteousness. we're, We're overwhelmed by who you are. And so we fall at your feet tonight and worship you in gratitude and joy. And Lord, we long, we long to love you. We long to serve you. We long to be faithful to carrying out your will in our lives, even in the rest of this week. So go with us, strengthen us. May we serve you with joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.